Now, back in the day, I used to do um, loads and loads of school's work. I don't do many now. But um, I used to love speaking in the school assembly. Now, who here remembers their school assembly as being the most riveting, exciting, dynamic moment of their school life? Just put your hand up. That would be great. There must be some teachers here. That's fantastic. And, uh, but I remember um, this one kid told me this story. He said he came into the school assembly and on the stage was a table with a basket of apples. And, uh, and there was a sign written above the basket of apples which said this, Take one apple only. God is watching. <laughs> and all the kids were like pretty nervous. You know, they'd sort of creep up to the front, grab an apple, have a good look around, take a step back, sit down. As they left the assembly hall, there was a table at the back. On the table at the back was this delicious chocolate brownie. And a kid had written a sign that went above the chocolate brownie. And it said this, take as much brownie as you want. God's watching the apples. <laughs> and you know, so often we've communicated a God that just doesn't understand. That's mean, that's grumpy, that couldn't possibly understand some of the anxieties and some of the pains that I go through and you go through. Life to me sometimes can feel like a bit like a game of Tetris. Who remembers the Tetris? Does anyone remember Tetris? It can feel like, can't it, completely overwhelming. These blocks fall out of the sky. And what happens is you've got to get them into a straight line. And when you get them into a straight line, the line disappears. But then they just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And eventually you think, hold on a minute, life is going too fast. It's just game over. Because you can't plan life, can you? Who can relate to this slide? Can anyone relate to this slide? Please tell me if you can relate to this slide. Put your hand up if you can relate to that slide. Is there anyone? So often we have the plan all worked out, and life doesn't work out the way we think it's going to. It doesn't mean God's not there. It just doesn't work out the way we think it's going to. I want to talk a little bit this morning about one of my favorite stories in the Bible, around the story of Elijah. I sort of feel like Elijah should be a blockbuster film. You know, it's a fascinating story. Because in the story of Elijah, you have these really evil characters, Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel's fascinated with the occult. She erects these temples um, uh, in, in worship of a god, a god called Baal. Baal was in charge of the weather. The way they used to worship the god Baal is they used to whip themselves. They used to sacrifice children. It was the most grotesque worship. And Ahab and Jezebel ruled over the land. And then you have 007 Obadiah, double agent. He's in the temple guards. He's hiding prophets of God from the evil queen Jezebel. And then Elijah comes to that point where I guess he must have realized that he was the answer to his own prayers. I don't know if you've ever had that. God, please intervene. And then God says, I'm calling you. And, uh, and so Elijah confronts Ahab and Jezebel, and he says in 1 Kings 17, there'll be no more rain nor dew until I say so. Not even until God says so, until I say so. And then God sends Elijah off to the Cherith Ravine. Now, I used to think when Sunday school, when I thought about Elijah being at the Cherith Ravine, I thought it was a nice stream, you know, nice blue water, ravens would drop Burger King on his lap every um, twice a day. In fact, it would have been murky, it would have been 120 degrees, um, the stream was, um, the brook actually was disgusting. And it would have been a really tough time. He would have been there for over a year. And even though he saw God provide in the tough time, it was still 
a tough time. And then he basically went from the chair of ravine, finally gets notice that he's allowed to go to Zenopath. Now, Zenopath is about 80 miles away, and it's Jezebel's hometown. So it would have been full of bar worshippers. So he must have thought, this isn't the greatest news in the world. You know, I've been here a year, no human company. I could do with a decent meal that isn't raw meat and manna. And he arrives in Zenopath, and God tells him to go up to a suicidal widow who's collecting sticks for her son, and they're just going to die. And then again, the miraculous happens, and uh, the boy is healed, you know, and we get a lot of stories, don't we, at festivals of people laying on dead bodies, and that's all from this story. Um, Come in there, and he's healed. But then it comes to a climax. They all go to this place called Carmel, and you'll know the story. The prophets of God are there. Uh, Elijah's there, and the prophets of Baal are there. And, uh, and there's two sacrifices, and, uh, and the, basically God sets uh, fire to the sacrifice, and uh, the prophets of Baal, they cry out, and nothing happens, and in the end, many of them die. Now, you would have thought, at this point, this must have been the highlight of Elijah's life. He must have thought, everything's going to change now. This is it, book tour. I am going to go and speak at every festival. I am going to be Mr. Popular. This is the moment. But the reality is, it's really different. Because life doesn't always work out the way we think it's going to. Um, prayers don't always get answered. People do get ill. Marriages do break down. Accidents do happen. Test results do come back with the news that we wasn't hoping for. And this is Elijah's reaction in 1 Kings 19, verse 1 to 5. He says this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he, he, while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a boom bush, sat down under it, and he prayed that he may die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once, the angel touched him. Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and he laid down. You know, Elijah came to a really painful place that he wanted his life to be ended at that point. For my story, I guess, I was always one of those classic Christian workers that always worked too hard. You know, I always describe it sometimes. Um, what you do is um, you put your phone on charge for 10 minutes, and, uh, and then it's got about 10% in it, right? And your phone can work as good on 10% as it can on 90%. It just doesn't last as long. And so I went through this cycle for years of constantly putting my phone on charge, working really hard, burnout. Work really, really hard again, burnout put the phone on charge, burn out. And this cycle went on and on and on. And I was working in a charity where it wasn't hard to get motivated because I was dealing with issues around knife crime and poverty and, and social injustice. And on the outside, I guess I looked like I was doing pretty well. In fact, the charity that I worked for, we had um, visits from prime ministers. You know, there's one guy who came down a lot, and I don't want to name drop, but he has blonde hair and he doesn't comb it very often. <laughs> and then... We had a visit from the royals twice in a year. And, uh, and they came and they met some of our young people that I was working with. 
And, uh, and I remember the last time they came, particularly, there's this photograph of me and Catherine um, on the front steps of our church. And what you can't see in that photograph are literally, not quite as many people, probably about 300 photographers. They're literally everywhere. And the, their lights, are, you know, their flashes on their cameras are going off all the whole time. So I'm turning to Catherine and going, God, I don't know how you do this. This would do my head in. And, uh, and I remember going home that night, and those photos went everywhere. They were in OK Magazine and Go Magazine and on the 6 o'clock news. And, and everyone the next day, our website crashed because so many people were looking at it. Our website um, and, and all the different stuff that's around it was going off. And uh, people said to me, wow, Patrick, you're doing really, really well. Life is good. And I guess I've worked out that the showreel can look brilliant, but the behind the scenes can be absolutely heartbreaking. Because in that photograph, I'm starting to suffer from really severe anxiety. I'm starting to go deep into depression. And, uh, and I'm struggling to work out how to navigate this, as a, particularly as a Christian leader, but just as a human being. And, and I sort of went thought of all the sermons that I'd heard on mental health during my life. And I couldn't think of many, to be honest. And I remember hearing that anxiety is a sin because you're not trusting God enough. I remember hearing that depression was a sin. I remember being told I didn't have enough faith. And to be honest, I came to a place where I just felt completely broken. And I came to a place where I'm just fed up of the show. I'm fed up with pretending everything's okay. I am desperate for something more authentic and more real. And so I started to write this book called Honesty Over Silence with Liza, who I know um, uh, goes to the church here with you guys. And we started writing this book. And to be honest, there were points in writing it, I thought, I think I need to stop now because I'll never get asked to speak anywhere ever again because everyone's going to think I'm backslidden. And, uh, but then I read the Psalms, and I read that 40% of the Psalms are laments. They're David going, I don't get it. And if you can't lament properly, you can't forgive properly. And so I started grappling with all this stuff. And, and, uh, and, it, and, you know, they say that some of the best writing and the best music and the best artwork is ta- came from a time of brokenness. And, but I didn't want to just do my story in the book. So I interviewed some of my friends. Um, this is Rachel Wright. Rachel has a son with a life-limiting condition. He has to be turned um, every two hours. She gives him 20 injections a day. And I was, Rachel, how does faith work for you? And she was like, I can't do it without my faith. She goes, I struggle sometimes in some of the Christian terminology around seasons, because next season is my son dies, and I want to be in this season as long as I can. And, uh, but I'm not, I can't do it without my faith. The next person that I interviewed was a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends, in fact. His name is John Sutherland. He's a borough commander in the police. He has 1,500 police officers work to him. And about six years ago now, um, there's a phone call. He's down A&E. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, has he been shot? He's been stabbed. And uh, he'd had a breakdown. The anxiety just got too much. And, and I've worked with people who've struggled with mental health, and I realize that most of them don't want to be rescued or don't want to be told what to do. They just want to be loved, and they just want people to be there for them. And uh, so I went around his house once a week and just listened to him. And he said to me, Patrick, the whole man up thing hasn't worked out for me, has it? The next chapter was a very tender chapter um, with Annan and Jackie Slough. And, uh, and I said, why do you want to tell their story? Their story is heartbreaking because their 16-year-old son completed a suicide. And I'm like, why tell your story? I tried to convince them not to do it. And they were like, you realize 6,500 people 
complete suicides every single year. Not talking about this stuff isn't working out very well for us. We've got to start having the honest conversations every single day on our railways. There's someone that completes a suicide. We've got to start having the honest conversation. Elijah was in a place where he was spinning out of control that he felt like he just about had enough. His anxiety was high. He was thinking, what can I do? When I got to the chapter on anxiety, because anxiety was my biggest issue I was struggling with, and, and it wasn't that I was on telly a lot or the royals, that just didn't bother me. There was, I was uh, waiting for a serious operation, there was health stuff going on, and I was just trying to work out, how can I cope with anxiety? And, uh, and so I read all the books, and they were all very technical, you know that, it was fight or flight, and, uh, and I thought they didn't really explain what anxiety was to me. And so then I started reading blogs by ordinary people like you and me, and I sort of came up with a little bit of a list. Um, it says this, anxiety is your brain not being able to turn off. It's the unanswered text message that kills us inside. Especially WhatsApp, right? Because you can tell it's been read. Just answer the text, please, everyone. It believes every negative scenario that you come up with. It's the inaccurate conclusions drawn as your mind takes off and you have no choice to follow its lead. It's apologizing for things that don't require you to say sorry. It's self-doubt and a lack of confidence. It's trying to fix something that isn't a problem. It's the fear of failure and then striving for perfection then beating yourself up when you don't get there. It tells you you're wrong, they don't like you. It's constantly asking the what-if questions. I couldn't find a definition. I wanted a definition, and, and all the mental health experts in the room, I know there's different types of anxiety. I've, I've read and researched a lot. Um, but I wanted a definition that described it for me. And then I found this online, and I thought, my goodness, this is me. More than anything else, anxiety is caring. It's never wanting to hurt someone's feelings. It's never wanting to do something wrong. More than anything, it's the want and the need to be accepted and liked, so you try too hard sometimes. You see, the thing is this. If you struggle with anxiety, my, the chances are that you are actually a beautiful, strong person. And I've come to the conclusion that depression, anxiety, and panic attacks are signs of people that have just been strong for too long. And you have incredible empathy, and you can understand people. And, you know, for too long, we've actually treated people in the church of anxiety just saying, you just need to have a bit more faith. That's all we've offered. Well, actually, there's so much that you give every time. In fact, just turning up to church for some of you takes humongous courage. Turning up for work takes courage. You are a courageous person. I like these little cartoon things. I think they explain anxiety quite well. This is anxiety. What if nobody likes me? What if I taste weird? What if I'm too cold? What if I'm too hot? What if I'm just right and I can never live up to it again? <laughs> How about this one? Um, the pearls of overthinking. What people don't like me? I've made a mistake. Am I good enough? Am I doing the right job? Am I doing this? Everyone's staring at me. One of the things that really helped me um, when I was in this time of really grappling with this whole area of brokenness and what it meant for me is I read a book called um, Depressive Illness, Curse of the Strong. And the psychiatrist in it was fascinating. He said nine times out of ten, he can tell the personal characteristics of someone who's suffering from depression. Nine times out of ten, they're these. Moral strength, reliability, 
diligence, strong conscience, a strong sense of responsibility, a tendency to focus on the needs of others before one's own, sensitivity, vulnerable to criticism, self-esteem dependent on the evaluation of others. People that struggled with this, Oliver Cromwell, Abraham Lincoln, Vincent Van Gogh, Winston Churchill, Mother Teresa, not weak people, just people that have been strong for too long. And then this image hit me, and uh, it's the image of Kintsugi, and it's what our charity, Kintsugi Hope, is named after. And basically, if you get a pot and you break it, I guess most of us probably disregard it, don't we? And, uh, but what they do in Japan is they put a gold powder in the glue. And, uh, and uh, so we would mend it with super glue and try and hide the cracks. They put a gold powder in the glue, so instead of hiding the cracks, they make a feature of the cracks. Arguably, the object becomes more beautiful than it was before. It certainly becomes more unique than anything else. There isn't a pot like that on planet Earth. And I started to realize that God meets us in our brokenness, that our scars are not something to be ashamed of. Our scars are often places of healing. And I just want to look really briefly at three things that God did in this situation with Elijah. Number one was he showed Elijah incredible compassion. You know, if you read in 1 Kings 19, you see this story, you know, Elijah's crushed by disappointment, isn't he? And God doesn't come up to him and go, come on, Elijah, you need to cheer up a little bit. Look on the bright side. Remember the good old days. Zenopath, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Hey, that was good. And uh, the chair of ravine weren't all that bad, was it? Come on, think of all the good old days. Actually, God sent an angel to care for him tenderly, providing him with food. He said, you need to sleep, and you need to eat, and you need to take care of yourself. Mike Iaconelli says this, most of us don't come home at night staggering drunk. Instead, we come home staggering tired, worn out, exhausted, and drained because we live too fast. You know, when I went uh, to one of my counselors, she, she said, um, Patrick, have you ever heard of the term self-compassion? And I thought, oh, I hate that term. Do you know what? I'm, a, I'm an activist. I just want to get on and change the world. That sounds like selfish and inward looking. I hate that term. And she's like, I think you've totally misunderstood what it is. And because uh, self-compassion and self-indulgence are two very different things. Self-compassion is not giving yourself endless pleasure, more biscuits, more wine, in fact, most of the ways we show kindness to each ourselves are actually giving us more stress in the long run. True compassion is this. It's talking to yourself the way that you would talk to your best friend. And, uh, you know, there's a few people I know here. Um, Liz Potter I have known for about 30 years or something ridiculous. And uh, we used to work together at Crusaders. And uh, if Liz came up to me and goes, oh, Patrick, Watford, doing my head in. They're a good-looking church, but they're doing my head in. And, uh, you know, grandkids doing my head in. This is going on. I wouldn't go, come on, Liz, cheer up a little bit, will you? Get your life together. Don't be so stupid. You're doing well, you know, come on. I wouldn't dream of speaking to my friend that way. I wouldn't dream of being that critical. Who do I speak to like that every single day? Myself. I'm my biggest critic, that inner critical voice that's saying, you should, you must, you ought. How often do we use those words? I should, I must, I ought. Constantly beating ourselves up, letting the inner critic. Compassion means to suffer with, to be conscious of another's distress and pain, and so to have that desire to alleviate the pain. So it's actually self-compassion is learning to do that for yourself. 
The second key thing, when Elijah's in this, in this place of thinking, I'm totally on my own, I'm isolated, everything is terrible. Um, and I always feel, and it's really helpful, is I always say, be really conscious about what you're thinking about. Uh, the famous psychologist Carl Jung says, whatever you resist persists. So what I've discovered with a lot of Christians is we take this verse, take captive every thought out of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and we totally misquote it. We quote it as in a way that every time a negative thought comes into your head, you need to bash it in the name of Jesus. And uh, it just doesn't work. Think about it. You know, if I said to you now, all of you here, I don't want you to think about chocolate. Some of you sitting there really struggling now. You're going, I'm not thinking about it. I'm not thinking about it. And, uh, and whatever you resist persists. And the fact is, is my mate describes it like this. If you go to the London Underground, you'll find there's trains come every two minutes. You can literally stand on the underground and say, stop training in the name of Jesus. I'm sorry, the train is still going to come. And, uh, but he says that's like our thoughts. Negative thoughts will come. And they will come every two or three minutes sometimes. But he said the key is this, is you have a choice whether you're going to get on the train or not. And sometimes it's actually letting the train pass. You know, because the thoughts, they come. And actually taking captive every thought is actually looking for Christ's voice, the alternative voice in that situation. I'm not going to get on the train. I can't let that train take me to that dark place. See, struggling doesn't mean you failed. It means you're human. Your thoughts are not always your friend. Your mind isn't always your friend. If you can remember anything about this talk, remember this little bit, all right? Don't believe everything you think. I don't know how many preachers you've heard. Question, doubt, it's really good for you. It is, actually. You know, certain people are the most terrifying people in the world. Have you noticed that? The people that flew the planes into the Twin Towers in New York were certain they were doing the right thing for their faith. They're scary people, certain people. And sometimes it's actually asking, is this really true? What I'm saying about myself, is it really true? Elijah, are you really alone? Because that was the third key thing here, isn't it? Is that Elijah thought he was alone And he replies to God. He says this in 1 Kings 19. He starts saying to God, I have been so zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. Elijah, overwhelmed, he assumed he was the last man standing. And in fact, in 1 Kings 19, verse 18, he discovers that there are actually... um, 7,000 others who haven't. He wasn't on his own. You are not on his own. You know, the two biggest um, issues that people are saying we're struggling with in society today are mental health and loneliness. Did you know that? And the stats around loneliness are crazy. Being acutely lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face by a stranger and massively increases your risk of depression. The effect of loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Three quarters of GPs say they see between one and five lonely people a day. So my story continued in a time of brokenness and writing. I was running a charity called XLP for 22 years, and it became quite, I guess, successful, whatever that means. Um, It was still very complex. And uh, I felt God say, "Um, it's time to let it go. And I was like, no, no, I'm a founder. We don't let go. And so I contacted all the other founders I knew, and they were like, why are you contacting us for? We're still running our charities. And, uh, and I thought, I really feel God's breaking my heart for something else. And you know how they say that vision is the art of seeing the invisible that produces passion and energy. You know, Jim Wallace said, Martin Luther King never stood up in Washington 
in front of two and a quarter of a million people he gathered without Twitter and Facebook. He never stood up and went, I've got a complaint to make. He said, I've got a dream. And he rallied people around a dream of justice and equality. And so me and my wife, we started praying and we started saying, we want to see a world where mental and emotional health is understood and accepted with safe and supportive communities where people can grow and flourish. Because we worked out that if you feel safe and if you feel supported, you can grow and flourish. And I must admit, I was a bit burnt out on charity. And I was like, and when I started XLP, I was just living on this estate with just a little one-bedroom flat. Now I've got four kids and a mortgage. I wasn't so keen on starting anything new. And I really felt God say, don't start a charity, start a movement. And so I started to study movements. I looked at things like parkrun. Anyone ever done parkrun? Put your hand up if you've done parkrun. That's quite a few little cluster at the back there, very healthy cluster at the back there. That's good. Um, rock choir. Anyone heard of rock choir? Um, a couple of people. And these were incredible movements because, you know, they start in community. They start small, different cultures, different ages, different people come together. And they've worked out how to help people belong but not necessarily fit in. Who needs to know that you don't have to fit in in order to belong? And uh, we looked at Weight Watchers. Anyone? No, let's not do that one. And we started looking at um, Alcoholics Anonymous. And these things, they had this thing in common. And something that happened in the grassroots. And so a bit like the Alcoholics Anonymous, um, my wife, um, she wrote this 12-week course on emotional and mental well-being. Um, looking at all the different things um, that you would normally look at. You know, anger and uh, self-acceptance and perfectionism. And uh, we started looking at all this stuff, and we thought, let's write it in learning styles, because everyone learns differently, you know that. There's seven different learning styles, visual, do, creative, all that sort of stuff. So we wrote it in learning styles, and then we thought, now how on earth are we going to get this across the country? So then we said to our home group, small group, life group, connect group, whatever you call them, is why don't we do this for 12 weeks? And they were like, well, this is new, I'm not sure that we want to do this. And um, they're going, let's not just do it for us. Let's do it for some of the broken people in our community. You know, it's not counselling, it's not therapy. This is about helping people with management tools and support and signposting and being there with each other. And so we went up to people in the school playground of my kids and went, we're going to start a Kintsugi Hope Wellbeing Group. And they were like, that's great, what on earth is that? And then I say, well, it's about the gold. And then as soon as you start describing it, they go, oh, the gold thing. And then they do this. Yeah, I'm broken. My husband's just left me. I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I'll come. Yeah, I, um, my kids suffer from severe anxiety. And actually, I haven't got a safe place where I can talk about that. In fact, in one of my books, uh, my wife wrote a chapter called Secondhand Smoke. And the whole idea is secondhand smoke can still, care, still kill you. And, you know, so often we don't care for the carer. Um, they're under a huge amount of stress. There's another lady who I um, knew... Um, working in a shop down the road, um, you know, 65, self-harming. Suddenly, our little life group of seven people trebled in size. But the, well, it was beautiful. It trebled with people of um, different faith and no faith. And suddenly we came together. And we weren't coming with, a, uh, basically, we're coming to fix you. We're coming, we want to try and do life together. We want to share in our common humanity. The first week was on honesty, and I was a little bit anxious, I have to say, and my wife was leading it. I was just a punter, and uh, she said, turn to the person beside you and talk about a high point and a low point in your life, and so I turned to the guy beside me who I'd been in church with my whole life. You know, in fact, he knew my parents 45 years, so I thought, this will be easy. I haven't got to share anything too vulnerable with this guy. We know each other. I learned more in five minutes 
than I'd learned in 45 years in church doing this. And I turned to him and went, mate, I'm so sorry that somehow we created a culture where you didn't feel like you could tell me what was really going on in your life. Me and him are tight now. He's about 20 years older than me, ex-head um, teacher, but we've like bonded in a completely different way. And so then what we did is, and we said to churches across the UK, and we had no database, we couldn't even nick a database these days, can you, with GPR and all that sort of stuff. And so we literally had nothing, but just through word of mouth, suddenly 11 groups started across the country. And churches were being so creative, they were going, well, this is the first material, we won't do it as our church, we'll do it with our homeless guys. So they started running it in homeless hostels. Um, we had other people going, well, this is materials, brilliant. We're going to run it in a prison. And they started running it in prisons and coffee shops. And it started to spread. And, uh, and we spent a year getting the material right and piloting and checking. And then suddenly, two months ago, we went live. So any church across the country can run one of these things in their community. And it's just been incredible. And I think why it's been incredible is we're letting go of the harmful notion that where are those in need and there are those able to help. We're all in need and we can all help. You know, and I'm praying like mad for a new move of God's spirit. And I have to be honest with you is that if the new move of God's spirit is somewhere in America in like a warehouse five times the size of this with an amazing band and a really, really famous Christian and God TV are going to come along and they're going to beam that across the world and we're going to call it revival, I'm done. <laughs> but you know what? If it could be in brothels, in homeless shelters, in hospitals, in schools, in universities, in coffee shops, in prisons, and if it cannot be led by the great and the good, but the fragile and the vulnerable and the hungry, I am totally and utterly in. I'm longing to see God do something new. I want to quote the famous theologian Winnie the Pooh. Don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Don't walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. Just walk beside me. Elijah was in a place where he thought, I am all on my own. And we've got to realize that we've got to be with people. There's a big difference between doing things for people and being with people. With people. And not always giving them answers, but being with um, I've got a, a new PA, her name's Ludovine, she's from France, and uh, about a year ago now, when we were doing these groups, um, she said, oh, I've, I've come up with a new word, and I was like, oh, okay, and she WhatsApped me, we have a WhatsApp group on our Kintsugi Hope group, and she said, the new word is flawsome, and I was like, you've made up a word, Ludovine, you can't actually do that, and so I went to, she went, I haven't made up a word, and uh, so I went to the dictionary, and I discovered that flawsome is in the dictionary, how cool is this? An individual who embraces their flaws and knows they're awesome regardless. You're flawsome. I'm going to just show a little video now, and then we're going to pray and uh, see what God wants to do among us. Check us out. My youngest son, Nathaniel, was at a friend's house. There was a confrontation with a boy that turned up and decided that he'd take a knife and stab Nathaniel with it. I feel like at that time I was in a bubble and feeling alone and not even knowing how to articulate that to anyone. 
I had to have major limb reconstruction surgery. Around the same time, my daughter got a condition called HSP and my dad got cancer. It was like a perfect storm of things going wrong. And I realised that the anxiety was really taking root in my life. And then you realise that actually you can't just carry on and you need to show some self-compassion. Bereavement is different for everyone. What's really important is that people are able to talk to someone that they can connect with. And through that, there's a real good healing process. And actually maybe receiving help is letting go of your pride and saying, I am really broken. And as we share in our brokenness, we share in our common humanity. The brokenness is my heart and it's in pieces. But through time, it's starting to come together again. Beauty comes from brokenness. Um, our scars are not something to be ashamed of. They make us unique. They make us who we are.